0: Right now, though, we're going to move from Iceland to the Asia-Pacific. The Asia-Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts, or Asia-Topa, is having its second kind of manifestation, incarnation, running uh, throughout January through to March. Joining us to tell us more, Stephen Armstrong and Kate Bentovam, who are the kind of powers behind the throne at Asia-Topa, the people responsible for uh, helping program work from around the Asia-Pacific region and also helping nurture connections between arts institutions and organisations here in Melbourne and their kind of partners overseas. Welcome to you both.
1: Hey, thanks Richard. Thanks Thanks, Richard.
0: So Stephen, let's start with you. Uh, In terms of Asia Topa itself, how important is it to have uh, a kind of an event like this—it's not just a, a discrete festival w- that runs for a week or two, but yeah, it's, it's a
1: really—it's a motivation. It's a—it's it, an opportunity. It's a—it's both an environment and a process. So we are just as interested in the long tail of um, uh, relationships between artists, and also in initiating those uh, relationships, particularly with artists from Southeast Asia, South Asia, where there is very little by way of. Um, industrial uh, uh, support, um, where the mechanisms are not there for presentation in the same way as we're used to, uh, and certainly the opportunity to travel is very limited. So we provide travel grants, we send uh, Australian artists to the region, we invite artists from the region to come and do labs with us, uh, and we, through a a fairly natural process of connection uh, and sharing and exchange... Uh, resolve how we're going to work and and what kind of work can come out of these uh, these meetings between cultures and, and individual artists
0: now the previous Asia topa saw some fascinating kind of fusions between uh so local companies uh, and interstate companies as well. So we saw a couple of choreographers in Melbourne working with dancers from Queensland and, and a sound ensemble. F- I'm trying to remember where they there were. It was Senyawa. Senyawa yeah. from Indonesia, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, works which, to a degree, uh, might challenge some people's kind of aesthetics. Let's talk about that a little bit, Kate. If if people are used to kind of pop music, for example, or kind of indie bands that have a certain yeah. musical style, you're encouraging them to expand their parameters by exposing them to bands with a, perhaps a, a more challenging style?
2: Yeah, and, I mean, they're a really good... Um uh, lead on from that actually is um, an, uh, one of our commissions so we really focus a lot on commissions in the festival over half um, of the festival is new work um, created with the festival in mind certainly and, and often commissioned by us um, and for example, we, um, we have invited Lucy Guerin um, to create the work Metal, which is a collaboration with Ensemble Tikoto, who are a heavy metal choir from Bandung in Indonesia. Um, obviously, the kind of experimental uh, music and sound world in Indonesia is incredibly strong and incredibly exciting. You know, there's actually now a, a, really a lot of connections, particularly between Melbourne and Indonesia, Java particularly. Um, Tikoro are a kind of pretty wild um, heavy metal music ensemble who also perform um, Javanese music. Um, You know, they're sort of uh, experiencing the Baroque repertoire, amazing, but for this um, collaboration they're really focusing on their metal repertoire um, and collaborating with Lucy Guerin and and she was involved in this collaboration with Senyawa last time. So it's a a really great kind of continuation of that relationship for her with artists from Indonesia and I guess uh, we're also... uh, showcasing um, other sound artists from Indonesia um, and, uh, you know, across the spectrum of music. So, yeah, music is really actually quite a strong part of the program um, this year. Contemporary music, um, particularly everything from some of those real kind of pioneers, um, particularly from Japan, Ryuji Akita is coming, um, who um, I would imagine quite a lot of the Triple R audience may know. He's both a visual artist and a composer. Um, this is quite a rare... Um, uh, appearance by him um, as a performer and composer, um, and and his work is highly visual, in- incredibly visual. Um, we have, as you said, artists from across the. Um, we're delving into the pop spectrum, um, which feels really appropriate for a city like Melbourne, who has an amazing pop, um, you know, pop and indie uh, uh, world. Um, but we're very much looking at pop and indie artists from Asia, of course. So indie indie artists from China will. Um, we're presenting our big pop concert again in the bowl, which we'll um, announce the lineup for in January. But K-pop, um, C-pop, so you know we're really celebrating contemporary music um, from across from across the spectrum.
0: And in a sign of the the growth of Asia Topa, mm. the fact that this year the organisation Frontier Touring have got involved, yeah. for example, when you uh, the the very first presentation of of Asia Pop Fest was something that Arts Centre Melbourne and, and partners kind of drove this year clearly uh, mm-hmm. the, the fact that business
2: is getting bigger in that, yeah. in that space <laughs> isn't it and yeah it, it,
0: to me it's a really fascinating sign that kind of the first totally. asia Topa kind of broke new ground and said this is possible yeah. melbourne is not only a city with a great music history but also a city with uh, a very large student population from uh, kind of uh, lake asia lake. and so putting on this huge concert at the bowl which i understand kind of sold out really quickly and yeah
2: yeah, yeah it was it was, a, it was a free a free gig oh. moment. Mostly free gig um, for the first for the first time, and um, was a real celebration of international students. And I think you're completely right. Um, and this time it'll be, a, you know, a ticketed show with Frontier. But I think you're really right um, in that Melbourne, you know, our. International student population is a massive part of Melbourne now. Um, there are these amazing stats that I've learnt through doing some of the research for this program. Um, uh, Mandarin is the top language spoken by residents of the Melbourne CBD over English, quite significantly um, over English now, um, and one in seven of the youth population in Victoria in Victoria are an international student. So this is absolutely who our city is um, in a really exciting way, we think. Um, and certainly Asia Pop, uh, sorry Asia Topa and Asia Popfest um uh, are really trying to celebrate that um, and be excited by the music that this audience are into as well as cel- celebrating them as an audience. Um, and also hopefully, as you said, kind of piloting things and working with our colleagues um, in the subsidised sector and also the commercial sector to say, hey, this is a really exciting audience that perhaps we need to understand more and we need to reach more. Um, uh, also, we're doing our, the huge um, Studio Ghibli celebration in the bowl is another example of um, with the MSO. Um, another example, I think, of a you know really exciting big scale um, commercial work really commercial project that touches that young um, Asian audience um, and is really special to them um, so yeah I think that's that's who our city is um, and I think that's really exciting and I think we as a uh, cultural institution can be excited by that and hopefully engage with that audience in that part of our city more and that's I think very much what one of the things that Asia Topa is interested to do.
0: And certainly uh, Asia Toper is as we've said, very much focused on commissioning work and supporting the development of new work and encouraging uh, conversations between Australian companies and partners uh, around the Asia Pacific. Uh, Stephen, I'll get you perhaps to talk about the, the work Black Ties, which I yeah. think uh, there's a lot of interest it's in a wicked from, piece. from colleagues in, in the, the performance sector. It's a collaboration between Ilbidri, the kind of First Nations theatre company here in Melbourne, and. Tara so here from
1: uh, Auckland. Uh, what's fascinating about this, we, we didn't really know that we were breaking quite the ground that we were. I mean, and clearly it's the artists who are breaking the ground, we're the facilitators but uh, in one of our labs um, uh, the invitation to, to Raheia to come and workshop an idea with Il Bidjeri was the first time a major uh, Maori company had actually been invited to collaborate with a major Australian Indigenous company. We were astonished by that. I mean, how late is this, this in the day? But it's never too late. Um, So we're really excited by uh, the concept that they put together. They gave themselves the brief of coming up with a show that their aunties would enjoy. So it really is um, a piece that is going to be uh, embracing and reflective of the community. Um, And of course, there are uh, perceptions there are uh, insights that uh, first nations people can have about one another that we certainly can 't have but by god it 's hysterical being in the room at the time um it's it 's a uh, it 's a wedding piece, so it has all of the classic tropes of a comrom um, uh, excepting that it has that cultural overlay uh it 's large scale I think there are about 16 people all up on stage because there's a live band. Uh, it's set in a reception uh, centre, so it's going to be held in uh, one of the big pavilion rooms at art Centre Melbourne, big round room. We uh, won't be sitting at round tables. There'll be a bar. It'll be really fun. But it's also it's a really good piece of writing, uh, and it's completely driven by the uh, First Nations collaborators, the New Zealanders and the Australians. Uh, they've determined absolutely everything about this, we were really thrilled to be able to present this to a forum uh, called MFI, which is the major festivals initiative, which was held 18 months ago, and the Sydney Festival, Perth Festival, Auckland, Wellington, and Brisbane have all come in on it. So it's now become a really big international collaboration. It'll tour the country. And this is also one of the things that Asia Topa uh, sets out to do, to actually make possible uh, shifting in programming um, perceptions and shifting in of how you make work and how you collaborate because we're all so much better uh, doing things together Um, and there's no point in pretending you're having a national dialogue through culture if you make things exclusive. So anything that's exclusive to a single festival is simply cutting off the possibility of the rest of the country talking about it and that's nuts.
0: In terms of the the breadth of the program, and it's a huge program, and I definitely recommend that people jump online dubdubdub dot topa dot com dot to browse through it, or pick up a copy of the the, the print program from all your usual, I know, independent mm-hmm. bookstores, record stores, laundromats, wherever you may find things, but. It is such a broad program. What's the interest in, been like in Asia Topa and the model of Asia Topa from your colleagues working in Sydney, Perth, yeah, elsewhere it's, around the country? quite
1: substantial and also internationally because what we found uh, after the first Asia Topa, um, we had we had a, a, a very credible number of international partners uh, co-investing in the work. This time it's much more. Uh, but what we also found was that the work was very popular. Touring. So we had three or four productions that actually actually have had very extensive touring lives through Europe and North America and Asia so there was an appetite for what this model uh, allows um, for the new ground that it breaks and also for work that is going to be um, uh, well I suppose that's part of the the, the you know ac- accepting the globalized uh, reality of culture being um, uh, being made by citizens of the world, which is what artists are, but also always reflecting on place, always refl- reflecting on where the work comes from. And, in fact, one of the constants throughout uh, the program, I think, is how the past is a ballast for the present and the future uh, and the, uh, the integrity and the depth of um, belief and... Uh, 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 Consolation that comes from these cultures um, that have really remained connected. Individual artists with training, who who's have body memory, spiritual memory, uh, who live their lives deeply connected to their culture and bringing that into uh, an Australian context and actually sharing that process with Australian artists has been amazing. So we have a, a, a real interest from European presenters and festivals in that process. Um, and I think in terms of the, the national scene, Kate, I, I'm not sure if... It,
2: yeah, I think, the, you know, I think the really exciting thing for us certainly um, around Asia Topa is this idea of um, all of our colleagues in the sector collaborating, you know, in this, in this, um, this, I guess, bigger vision of presenting work from Asia on our stages, and also, in, you know, really supporting the collaborations between Australian artists um, and colleagues from the Asia Pacific. And I think that as a model in terms of how we work um, in a city and how we work as a group of cultural institutions is definitely something um, that has been of great interest, I think, nationally and, and potentially internationally. But it's also something that's um, just really great for us in the sector to be doing every three years. You know, it is has been a really collegiate experience. Um, it's been... We do a lot of sharing um, and co-presenting of work, even things like, you know, for us at the... Um, you know, in terms of our Arts Centre team, um, co-presenting work um, almost off-site in other venues and things like that. So those kind of things which are, um, you know, uh, quite... I guess unusual for how we work in the sector in a in a, in a standard way um, have have been a really important part of the Asia tope model and I think something we'll see more broadly in and the also sector.
1: extending that into the metropolitan area um, mm-hmm. we're working with Bunjil Place a brilliant new venue in Narawaran, a uh, beautiful 750 seat theater and a 200 seat studio we're actually going to be doing the final rehearsals for a piece called Samsara uh, which is a dance work a collaboration between Shen Wan from China and Akesha Dedra from an Indian uh, an English Indian artist, uh, a Katakaks uh, dancer. Uh, that work is actually going to be uh, rehearsed for two weeks. Uh, and have two community performances, because in fact that is where the, uh, there is a high concentration of Indian diaspora and also Chinese diaspora. So they will actually be very close to the making of the work. There'll be outreach programs, there'll be masterclasses and workshops. So by the time it then swings into Arts Centre Melbourne and gets put onto the Playhouse stage, it's already being supported and advocated for by that community. So thinking about the city of, of Melbourne beyond the concentrated focus of, of uh, the South Bank Arts Precinct, love it and as important as it is, and in fact they are, that, that is the, the, the generative kind of hub of of Asiatopa. but nonetheless it's reaching out into the city and recognising that it's not so easy for people to travel for an hour and a half at the end of the day um, to come in and, and, and enjoy a, a performance. So that kind of connectivity goes well beyond just the national uh, you know presenters and the companies. It also goes into the communities.
0: Now, speaking of some of the work that's being presented, I know uh, from what I, well, from what I've been told and what I'm hearing, the the kind of buzz in some communities around the artists that are coming to Melbourne for Asia Topa in January, February, and March. So, for example, um, uh, Abita Parveen. Uh, I wonder uh, if
2: you're going to say, it. yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually heading to Pakistan on Sunday. I um, just got my visa through yesterday to, to do some preparatory work and to i hope have an audience with abhi Parveen um to um, you know to do some media as well but yes yeah, she this is she is uh, an incredible sufi a d- devotional singer um Sufi singer um she is for audiences who uh, may not know her specifically, but know artists like Nusrat, the late Nusrat Fateh Ali Khan in that style, the sort of incredible devotional Sufi music, which is completely transcendental really. Um, she, and, but she's very unusual in that she's a female and, you know, a female devotional singer, particularly in these traditions are highly unusual, but she, she is, yeah, she's quite something I saw her when I was living in India perform in a, a Mughal tomb actually. Um, and it was, yeah, I've been trying to convince her to come to Australia since then, really. It was a long time ago. Um, we're co-presenting this with Salam Fest, which is a really beautiful um, local festival here um, that presents uh, work each year, looking at the Muslim um, arts and culture, cult, uh, Muslim arts and culture. But yeah, she is. It's highly unlikely she'll ever come here again. And, and um, yeah, she's something quite extraordinary. Um, um, yeah, you, she. Um, it, She she doesn't really, you you don't even know how long she's going to perform for, what she's going to perform. She consults, um, you know, her sort of sacred text beforehand and, you know, really the spirit moves really um, when she performs and, yeah, she's something else. And a hugely, one of these artists that, I guess it's so special for us to bring to Asia in that she is an absolute iconic artist for a huge part of the population of Melbourne, the kind of artist that, you know, particularly people from the subcontinent, India, Pakistan, you say her name and pretty much everybody kind of swoons, um, but also, but then an artist who's probably quite unknown for a lot of the population, and I think that's what's really exciting about something like Asia these incredibly iconic artists for significant parts of our population, um, both bringing the artist to that, um, to that audience that love them, but hopefully also, you know, um, introducing those artists to um, to audiences that don't know them. So she is definitely one of those ones that I think um, is a is a kind of a, is a don't miss.
0: And also in, uh, on the dance front, uh, uh, a performer from India uh, who I'm told there is enormous respect for uh, Malika. Uh, uh, Malika Sarabhai. Sarabhai, yeah. yes.
2: Um, she is. She's again quite an extraordinary person, really. She's a. She's a. Dancer, actor, activist—very much. She's been an in- incredibly um, important voice in the sort of feminist um, dialogue in India for a very long time. In the political um, dialogue, um, both you know, uh, uh, party political as well as um, as well as I guess social political. And the the work that she's presenting, Spark is a is really a kind of a uh, a. Um, a new reading a critique perhaps of the Gandhi um, legacy which is a you know is a pretty strong thing for an Indian artist to do Um, yeah so she is exactly one of those artists that has holds a really important cultural place um, in in India um, as well as she has an amazing aesthetic practice as a a background as a dancer but her work really you'd almost call it yeah she there's spoken word dance um, video so she has a sort of a hybrid practice when you see it but yeah she really really is a very important uh, voice um, in India and especially you know now when politics is complicated in that in that part of the world so yeah we uh, and and it's great that we have and it's a bit of a theme throughout the program particularly these incredibly strong female voices from the region um you know this um yeah we delighted that a number of the major artists we're bringing as well as you know across the program are really strong female voices as well as actually a number of the curators we're working with um are, you know really strong um women working in, um in their sort of highly specialized field so it feels there's a lot of really strong female voices through this program which which is great
0: and some work which i've seen previously which i absolutely have to recommend and acknowledge uh so the vietnamese circus work Ao lung Pho, which yeah. i saw in perth mm. a couple of so years ago you? yeah mm-hmm. kind of Divine. wonderfully playful, celebratory. And to see a circus tradition that is not kind of that, I don't know, contemporary Australian-style uh, circus or the, the Canadian tradition, that's fascinating as well. And then also Push Schmidipus, oh, which yes. I've, I've performed in <coughs> and uh, is being presented as a work which, uh, in both English in one performance and then in Cantonese. Yes. In Cantonese.
1: Yeah, we're working with um, the West Kowloon Cultural Authority, uh, Free Space it's called, um, and the Hong Kong Repertory Theatre, Uh, And uh, Mish and Zoe, who are Post, the creators of the work, uh, spent some time in Hong Kong. Um, We commissioned the translation um, into Cantonese. The Hong Kong uh, company uh, produced it and presented it in their Black Box Studio season uh, last November. It was really successful uh, and it just seemed to us... Uh, a fantastic thing to be able to bring that into Melbourne, present it on a campus. So we're presenting it at the Union Theatre. So I mean, this is this is where you know full frontal. Barry Humphreys, Barry Kosky, I mean, so many legends of our own tradition um, broke new ground and and made their names. Um, And this is the space where we'll be presenting a Cantonese version of a very contemporary feminist uh, look at, you know, dead white male theatre and removing the romanticism and the the high art value from the the great canon by focusing only on the death scenes. But in the end, of course, it's a really beautiful um, meditation on mortality with 25 members of the audience up on stage, with uh, well, 24 plus Richard, um, <laughs> every night. Um, and the idea that these will be the Cantonese-speaking uh, international students and other members of the Cantonese community in Melbourne is really exciting. Um, and then the English-speaking students can see the same work. Um these are the kinds of things that we, we need to be thinking about. Do we, do we just have to think in more inventive ways about how to engage contemporary practice both ways in an exchange with the region. Um, uh, I know that the second woman was translated into Taiwanese and performed very successful. That's Natalie Randall's piece that was produced for The Next Wave a few years ago. Had a fabulous uh, season in Taiwan. Um, so it's not just one way, it's two ways, and I think the future is really bright.
0: I'm very much looking forward to the second iteration of Asia Topa, the uh, Asia-Pacific Triennial of Performing Arts. It's running from January through to March uh, and is presented by Arts Centre Melbourne in partnership with a huge with range. Pretty
2: much
0: of- <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, jump online for more details, www.asiatopa.com.au. And thank you both very much for joining hey, us thanks, here Richard. at RRR.
3: Triple R.
0: Triple R. Now, are you a fan of musical theatre? You may be, you may not be. People who love musical theatre are often passionate about it, but... Are you also, perhaps, if you're a fan of musical theatre, are you a fan of Australian musicals? I don't mean the local productions of the big-budget Broadway shows that come to Melbourne, tour the country, and have already been kind of fine-tuned and streamlined and corralled within an inch of their life so that the local artists create it exactly as it was performed in uh, in on Broadway or in London's kind of West End, but... Are you a fan of homegrown Australian musicals? Uh, If you are, then a book deserves to be on your shelf or perhaps in your Christmas stocking. It's called The Australian Musical From the Beginning. Uh, It's written by Peter Pine and Peter Wiley-Johnson, and Peter Wiley-Johnson joins us in the studio now. Peter, a very good morning to you.
4: Good morning,
0: Richard. Great to be here. So in terms of the history of the Australian musical. For many people, they they might think it's a relatively recent phenomenon, uh, perhaps because they saw the the stage uh, production, Priscilla Queen of the Desert, or something like that. But the history of the Australian musical goes back much further than people realise, doesn't it?
4: It does. It actually goes back a little more than 100 years now. In 1920, we have our first official Australian musical, which is has an extraordinary title, FFF. And in 1920, the guy who wrote that musical, Clement de Garris from Melbourne, had a competition to ask people if they could figure out what FFF stood for. And uh, we don't actually know what people were calling out from the theatre in those days, but we do know nobody ever got it right. And these days, um, I'm sure people could speculate as to what that means, but it was uh, a big hit for a very short time, you might say. It ran in Adelaide then in Perth, then in Melbourne, and then disappeared from the stage forever. That's our first official book musical.
0: Now, what do we mean by an official musical, an official Australian musical? What, what makes an Australian musical?
4: Thanks, Richard. That's a great question. I think that uh, this is our first official book musical because it has all the attributes. It's an Australian story, an original st- story by an Australian. It has original music by an Australian, original words, It's all Australian in every sense. And it was deliberately constructed to emulate what was emerging in Broadway at that time, the book musical. In other words, the musicals we know today, a musical with dialogue that drives the action but is combined with songs that actually express the things that aren't said in the dialogue. So that, as you were saying before, the perfectly constructed Broadway show that turns up here all the time. Um, Clement Garris was trying to emulate that in 1920. And so even though there'd been been Australian musical theatre before, we had The Bunyip in 1916, 17, a big, big hit, huge hit, ran for over a 1,000 performances, which is an enormous run. Mae Brar, a very interesting woman from Melbourne, had already written a musical in England by that time, but she had a co-writer who was English, so we can call this a half-Australian musical back in 1915. But the fully-fledged Australian musical number one is FFF in 1920. So the centenary is next year. Do you think it would ever get restaged? Well, actually, people have been asking me that in the last few weeks. And unfortunately, even though we have the the complete script, we don't have the musical score. We have about eight of the published songs. So it's possible we could stage bits of it, but unless the original musical score turned up somewhere, which it possibly could then we couldn't do the whole musical. But we could do number two, 1921, by Jack Fuster, Yanta Binci, about a group of theatre actors, a theatrical troupe who was stranded on a sheep station in South Australia in the middle of a flood. And that's a very, very funny musical, clever, with some fabulous tunes. And we have the complete score, musical score and the book, the libretto of that musical, sitting in the Performing Arts Collection of South Australia, just waiting to be revived.
0: Now, this notion of musicals being lost, musicals being revived, perhaps cuts to one of the reasons I imagine you wanted to write this book. Because there have been so many Australian musicals, original Australian stage musicals, works of uh, of scale, that have been forgotten, that are not part of our cultural memory.
4: Absolutely right. And uh, I think it's very interesting, especially the early period the 1920s in Adelaide, we have 12 musicals between 1920 and 1932. staged in Adelaide, many of them at the Theatre Royal, in lavish productions. Fuster and King with the big team over there, writing with an extraordinary woman called Edith Aird, who wrote the most sort of zany, crazy stories, sometimes with a serious point to them, but a lot of the time comedic, jazz age stuff, which was wholly Australian as well, and really captured the public over there. But JC Williamsons in Melbourne wouldn't produce these shows even when they were successful financially, because Williamson's had the monopoly on American musicals and British musicals and they were raising money for producers. So they dominated the stage to the exclusion of our work, which I think is a big reason why Australian musicals were neglected, as you said.
0: And do you think they're still neglected today? Because the musicals that the Australian musicals that have been more successful, and Priscilla Queen of the Desert is an example, have been jukebox musicals. Uh, And no disrespect to the form of the jukebox musical, which takes existing songs and structures a show around it. But uh, if I compare something like Priscilla Queen of the Desert to Ladies in Black, uh, an original uh, musical, for example, based on an Australian novel and telling an Australian story. Uh, it's the, the the jukebox musicals that seem to become more successful, perhaps because they're full of songs that people already know and love.
4: Well, I think there are several factors there, Richard, and that's a really important point. The original musicals that have worked best, I mean, this century, for example, Keating, was a very big financial success. Really good tunes, good lyrics, good story and it ran in many, many revivals and also on DVD, big success. But as you say, it's very hard for original musicals to get up in Australia. And when they do, um, you still have budgetary considerations and the fact that often the story is less familiar to the general public than many American stories or British stories from movies or other sources that we already know. And also the music isn't nearly as well known either. And because those jukebox musical songs dominate the airwaves so often, um, the Australian music often isn't heard either. And so there are a whole series of factors that combine to make it much more difficult for an Australian musical to become really popular. This year, I'm happy to say, Victorian Opera is producing Margaret Fulton, Queen of the Desert. Now, that's a first. And Richard Mills has taken a big uh, step there, I think, in promoting that musical because I've seen it several times in Sydney a couple of years ago. David Spicer produced it. Then in the original production at Theatre Works in Melbourne, absolutely fantastic, beautifully written, great music.
0: I saw that original production in Theatre works at, at Theatre Works. I'm so glad that it's getting uh, a return. finally uh, in a, in Melbourne stages getting a return. Um, what about? Uh, Given that uh, music theatre buffs, there are certain names, like Sondheim, for example, that are thrown around regularly that people know. Who are the Australian equivalents? Who are the Australian kind of uh, teams of, I don't know, uh, book writer and composer, for example, that should be household
4: names? Well, right now, of course, we have Eddie Perfect on Broadway doing quite brilliantly. Of course, that's, again, one of the half-Australian, because he wrote the music and lyrics of Beetlejuice. Tim Minchin, of course, has had Matilda and Groundhog Day. Fantastic talent there, but of course we've got Miller and Rutherford. Uh, We've got a couple of new musicals coming up in particular at the moment, The Dressmaker and My Brilliant Career, Brian and Frank. And I think they've said that they're quite determined to work locally and to elevate the Australian musical on the local scene. And I think teams such as that are really leading the way here. But I think Casey Bonetto has something new in the works, I'm told. Um, and of course he wrote Keating and I think a very hard act to follow for a whole stack of reasons but we do have people here and Kate miller Hartke, of course with Muriel's Wedding just recently I think another great example of a writer who can really cut it with the in the commercial theatre because she can write music that people enjoy listening to.
0: Well certainly in terms of the the history of Australian musicals it's so important to have a book like uh, the book that you and uh, and Peter have co-written, The Australian Musical, from the beginning, because uh, h- pretty much half the book is an alphabetical listing of Australian musicals, so documenting what is known, what is out there, and so uh, recognising the work of uh, Dean Bryant and Matthew Frank, for example, uh, recognising uh, the work uh, it was John English who tried to get his musical out Paris for years yes. and years. So to have this as an archive of what has what is known and what has been forgotten is really, really important. How long did it take the two of you to research and prepare and develop? Is this is this a life
4: nice work? Originally, well, I have to tell you, uh, my interest in this was triggered when I was, I think, 11. I saw Carolyn, which is one of Peter Pinney's and Don Batty's musicals, back at St Martin's Theatre in the early 70s. And um, I started keeping scrapbooks. So in my case, it's been a lifelong thing. For Peter, it's been even longer. He's now in his 80s, I know he wouldn't mind me saying a lifelong commitment from Peter Penny to Australian Musical Theatre. He's written 20 musicals of his own, several of which have had big productions and revivals. Prisoner's Cell Block H, the musical, got to the West End. He and Don Paddy wrote that. I think it was their 15th or 16th musical. Unbelievable. But tenacity, talent, hard work, never giving up. So, look, we've both had this commitment. When we met back in the 2000s, I was doing a PhD on the Australian musical... And Peter and I met and we put our lists together. We'd been keeping lists for years of all the musicals of the past. We had enormous archives between the two of us and we decided we really needed to do this because we didn't want to sit there with decades and decades of work. And also, it's Australian culture, it's Australian attitudes, words, ideas, music from the past, the enormous work of people from that period. And in particular, I found... Australian women who really dominated the early part in the 20th century creatively, which was quite an interesting discovery. May Brar, Edith Aird, Edith Hurry, Mrs. Varney Mugg, as she called herself, some extraordinary Australian women. And also, like Broadway, as it turns out, they've got quite a strong Jewish influence there, yeah. um, which, of course, as you know, Broadway everyone says, well, um, virtually everybody was Jewish except Cole Porter. In Australia, it didn't seem to be the case. But in point of fact, there's quite a strong Jewish influence there, um, particularly with sentimental bloke Albert Allen and uh, Mrs Varney Monk, who, was, who wrote a competition-winning musical in 1932 promoted by Natalie Rosenwax, who was a Jewish philanthropist in Sydney in those days with a competition for a new Australian musical. So the influences were quite fascinating. The other thing I have to say is the number of musicals that have been repeated. Ned Kelly has been done and done and done. Eureka's been done and done and done. Reg Livermore had the most spectacular Ned Kelly, which I think is a fantastic piece of work, but for all sorts of reasons, didn't get the run it really deserved, I don't think.
0: Which is a shame. I've seen, uh, I saw the musical Ned in its uh, premiere um, in the Alumbra Theatre in Bendigo, which was. I think a valiant attempt to to stage a musical not an entirely successful possibly a slightly derivative show in terms of of its structure but nonetheless trying to uh, take a classic Australian story and stage it in a form which when it works uh, uh, is one of the the most joyful powerful forms of storytelling that combination of story and song uh, kind of cuts straight through to the heart in a way that um, a a traditional uh, piece of theatre perhaps cannot is there an Australian story you would like to see adapted as a musical that has not been done yet?
4: Oh, that's a really hard question, Richard. I think what would be good, I mean Claude-Michel Schoenberg at Radley Mis once told me that the most important thing in a musical is the story it's also the hardest thing to find. He said, you must have a great story. If you haven't got a great story don't write the musical. Um, off the top of my head I would hesitate, I have to say Um. Because when I read that the boys were doing The Dressmaker and My Brilliant Career, I thought, well, there are two great stories that you could convert to musicals. You could see how well they could be done. And I was away when they were showcased in Monash last year, unfortunately, but um, they're in development. So I'd say if we go to our literature, um, that's probably where we're going to find the stories. I mean, Kenneth Sless's Darlinghurst Nights, for example, made a really terrific musical, very good source of material. Um, Off the top of my head, I have to admit I can't think of anything. Uh, We've gone to politics. We even have Halt, the musical, which didn't run, unlike Keating, um, surprisingly enough. But um, who knows what somebody might come up with. Casey Burnett, I I think, has um, a wealth of fantastic ideas. Maybe he'll come up with something. Well,
0: Casey is a regular... uh presenter and host here on Triple R, so I'll just have to corner him at some stage and uh, find out what else he's got in the works. The Australian musical From the Beginning by uh, uh, my guest, uh, Peter Wiley-Johnson and his colleague, uh, Peter Pine? Pinny Pinney, I'm sorry. So Peter Pinney and Peter Wiley-Johnson's The Australian Musical From the Beginning, published by Alan and Unwin. Uh, It's uh, a hardcover book 432 pages uh for the musical theater fan in your life it's a christmas must uh as i said published by Allen and Unwin it's in uh all good independent bookstores and possibly even one or two bad ones um for 79.99 i definitely recommend it i've uh i i've been dipping in and out it's uh and i'm so glad to see some of the musicals i know and love in there and others that i've never heard of so i look forward to finishing reading it on my christmas break but peter thank you so much for joining us here at triple r
4: thank you
3: Richard.
0: R. Something else you may wish to do over the summer break is tackle your reading pile. I'm sure you have one. Uh, I certainly have one, and it's getting taller all the time, and Christmas is a great time to finally find the time to sit down and read all those books and, uh, and everything else uh, that you've been meaning to address. That might include podcasts. That is almost the equivalent. That's an oral reading pile. But something that you should add to your reading pile for Christmas is... The latest platform paper from uh, Currency House. It's called Criticism, Performance, and the Need for Conversation. It's written by Alison Crogan, who joins me in the studio now. Alison is an award-winning critic. She's also a novelist, a poet, a librettist, a playwright, um, uh, and many other things. Alison, lovely to have you back.
3: Lovely to be here, Richard.
0: So let's talk about this platform paper. Uh, I'm assuming Currency approached you and said, do you want to write about the state of criticism today?
3: They did indeed. And I said, this was last last year, and I foolishly said, yes, no problem. (laughs) (laughs) And then 2019 happened, but I still got it done. So...
0: Let's start, I guess, with the question, why is art's criticism important? Why does it matter? Why do we need it?
3: I think uh, it matters. Well, that's such a complex question, isn't it, Richard? But um, it matters because it's part of the conversation around culture. And the conversation around culture and art is a conversation about... Everything. It's about uh, our values as human beings. It's about our values as a society. About it's about what matters to us as individuals. So um, it's part of that conversation.
0: So one of the things that you document in uh, this platform paper is the state of criticism today, Uh, and it's. But you also give us uh, the origins of criticism as well, Uh, going back to the coffee houses of London, for example. how necessary was it to to say if we're talking about criticism now we need to know what it was what it has been in the past
3: Yes, I think it's important to know that it's not just a conversation that happens in the present. It's a conversation that has occurred actually, as I say, I mean, it's a very whistle-stop tour I do of the history of arts criticism because it's a huge, huge topic. But I go back 2,000 years to, you know, in all cultures people have talked about the art that's been made and written about it and we can still read quite a bit of that. But um, theatre criticism, which is what I'm specifically talking about, as we know it, pretty much was formed in the 17th century and that's when um, the rise of the bourgeoisie as a a powerful class and there were coffee houses of London which were literally conversations and it was also the birth of newspapers.
0: Now one of the things that you say uh, in the paper uh, is that criticism along with theatre itself is constantly perceived to be in its death throes. (laughs)
2: Yes.
0: So is the crisis in cultural criticism now just part of an ongoing crisis that has affected criticism for Hundred years or more, or is what we're seeing now and the decline of arts criticism more truly more urgent and more of a crisis now than it has been previously?
3: I'm inclined to think it's more of a crisis now, as with everything else. We've, you know, environmentally, we've been in crisis for a long time, but we're all seeing that crisis accumulate and mount up to something that's uh, really dangerous. I'm not saying what's happening to arts criticism is by any means the same thing but it's linked and um, over the last sort of 40 years we've seen all sorts of shifts. I've I've talked to people who've said oh well you know this is a paper about um, how the internet killed theatre criticism and you know yay for the good old days and it's Actually, not exactly that at all. It's a bit more complex than that. I, I'm not at all nostalgic for any kind of golden age in criticism, and the and one of the things that I do talk about is how the internet made a whole kind of diversity of criticism possible in a culture like Australia where we have very concentrated media ownership and therefore fewer outlets than, say, places like Germany or London or America, um, made it possible for a whole bunch of voices to enter into the conversation around theatre. Um, and you remember those days, you had a blog yourself, Richard. There was about 10 years where it was terribly, terribly interesting in Melbourne where there was all sorts of discussion going on between a bunch of people, a lot of younger people who became impassioned about the theatre and were writing blogs and that seemed to me like a glimpse of what a possible critical culture can be, um, which is about not one or two or three Voices dominating the discourse, but a whole lot of voices talking excitedly about why it matters.
0: And which taps in beautifully, uh, instead of a decline of critical authority, what we were seeing at that time was um, uh, an empowering of perspectives yes. and a genuine sense of community emerging of not just theatre critics talking to one another or theatre critics um, uh exercising their their control over you should see this and not see that and here's why and I have said so because I am the authority. That's right. It was an engagement and a conversation, uh, and a sense of community between writers, between artists who were making the work that was being written about, and between audiences. Just yes. general theatre goers who yes. loved the work and wanted to extend the conversation beyond the foyer.
3: Yes, it absolutely was. And and it was a you know a small period of time but as I said it showed me what's possible and um, and the the thing about audiences in particular is really important that there were so many people who were kind of new to theatre who'd sort of popped in seen something been maybe puzzled about it or or wondered wanted to find out more but and read stuff read these arguments that people were having and started joining in because they were really interested. And so I suppose criticism in its broadest sense is is a community of the interested. And that feeds itself. It becomes a virtuous circle because the more people are interested, the more people are interested.
0: What is the state of criticism now?
3: It's pretty complex, isn't it? What it it is now is... I mean, it's a bit of a sorry state, I think. We've seen um, all the... Over the I've, another thing I trace is what's happened to newspapers with um, over the digital revolution since computers first came into the newspaper offices. And uh, there
0: is a, fa- a point where you actually write about the very first computer you ever saw in an yes. office. Yes, yeah,
3: I'm old enough to remember that, which is disconcerting but it really wasn't that long ago this has happened quite rapidly and um and the terrible industrial struggles that they prompted and the jobs that went and how how that's changed but that's totally as as that's developed and evolved over the last sort of particularly 20 years we've seen arts Coverage and arts criticism in in the mainstream newspapers just shrink and shrink and shrink. There, there's obviously exceptions, but um, for the most part, it's not just how much is being covered, but um, how long, how much space it's given. How how um, and th- that's actually deeply concerning, and it's difficult to know what can be done about that because what it's done is, is fractured the audiences to more and more specialist publications, which do seem to be the only kind of um, way of getting any long-form criticism. And I think what we've really seen is the difficulty of getting long-form criticism for a general audience.
0: Now, one of the the... Amongst the many other things you, you write about in uh, this platform paper, uh, and if people uh, want to know more about the publication we 're talking about criticism performance and the need for conversation uh, go to currencyhouse.org.au. Uh the platform papers are published uh, quarterly and yep. uh, kind of analyze and dissect and discuss issues of relevance to the art sector and the the people who work in it and the people who love the arts so this is not just a conversation for uh, for people who make theater or write about theater it 's a conversation that Involves anybody who wants to go to theatre and, and talk about what they've seen and understand why they've seen what they've seen.
3: Yeah.
0: Um, but one of the you, you talk about the 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 rise recently of uh, witness performance, yep. which is the site that you and Robert Reed created. That's right. Um, simultaneously in Sydney, we've seen the emergence of Audrey Journal, yep. uh, which is Jason and Alyssa Blake's That's publication. Right. Yep. Uh, and. Uh, in Perth, seesaw, uh, yeah. which is, and I'm so glad that seesaw exists because every time I visit Perth, and when, same as visiting Brisbane and uh, and Hobart to a degree as well, the artists in those cities talk about the lack of a critical culture there.
3: Absolutely, and uh, it was quite kind of weird because all these are all online critical sites that all sprang up pretty much at the same time independently, and we we all responded to exactly the same problem that there's no. Um, well it's not true in Melbourne there is criticism in Melbourne but in places like Perth and in Brisbane where I recently did a panel huge concern huge huge concern Um, because
0: if the criticism isn't there it means it's not just that people aren't writing reviews it means that an ephemeral art form like contemporary dance, yes. like theatre, like cabaret—it's not being documented. No, which, which means in fifteen or twenty years' time, it's somebody, erased. Yeah,
3: it's ra- I mean, I was uh, one of the things behind Witness was when uh, it was a couple of Dance Massives ago. Uh, dance Massive is a huge dance festival here in uh, biannual, biannual every two years in Melbourne, and I um, tried to sell reviews. And I could not sell reviews of dance anywhere. I was really shocked for a major festival like because dance ha- typically has very short seasons, because you know, and it's specialist, et cetera, et cetera. Um yeah, you you cannot um actually get anyone to publish reviews in any big papers and and that showed me that there's a real problem. And especially for art forms like dance and independent theatre, so that was one of the um, motives behind starting Witness, and but but and we all we all started with different kinds of financial models because we well in Perth they don't get paid, though they recently got a little bit of funding which is yay, um, but again it's run by two women, um, in in. Aud- Audrey's run by Alyssa and jason and and Robert and me in, in Melbourne and we've all kind of been in touch you know like we, and we're all exhausted after two years we're all exhausted we're all wondering how we can continue
0: because you have money to pay your writers but you aren't paying yourselves
3: not at the moment no yeah um,
0: one of the things that struck me as fascinating um, uh, and I and I must admit even slightly frustrating about this platform paper is um uh, you, you kind of say towards the end, uh, if criticism is to survive, um, Australian cultural bodies now need to take this long debated crisis in theat- criticism seriously and to consider seriously how to support it. It feels like there should be a part two to this platform paper talking about what the solutions and, po- and how to support it may be. It, it really does feel like you've written, you've said, this is the problem. What next? And now we need to write what next or discover yes. and grapple with what next what do you well, think would come next
3: well i think th- it ought to be um funded actually things like this used to be funded i mean it, the theatre australia which was the magazine um which was on and off more or less but it was a, a quarterly magazine i think or maybe monthly i really can't remember um which ran long reviews it was a print magazine um that was funded and disappeared when it wasn't funded um But there's, you know, the same way that literary magazines mostly have been funded, um, but less and less. But, of course, I come to a full stop there, Richard, and it's a good point because, as I think I mentioned in the thing, the whole kind of crisis around arts funding makes arguing for criticism, which is kind of, I hesitate to say secondary, but an ancillary thing to the actual making of the art makes it difficult. On the other hand uh particularly in the performing arts where you see it really strongly um the direct relationship between the critical discourse and that, by critical discourse i mean everything about how audiences react to you know long form essays there 's a whole spectrum of response feeds back into the work there's a there's it 's a dynamic it 's what I mean by a conversation and um and good criticism which is to say by good criticism I mean engaged and informed and um, interested and attentive, makes a huge difference to the culture. It just does. And, um, you know, it can inspire better work. It it has to be honest criticism. Yeah. Um, But that does, you know, like I have no time for the kind of critique that's just uh, just about snark and just about showing off uh, critics you know cleverness or something like that it's not interested and it's not interesting um, but but it needs to be honest it needs to and it and it needs to exist in a whole diversity of voices. There
0: is absolutely a crisis in criticism at the moment. Alison Crogan documents that in criticism, performance and the need for conversation. Where that conversation goes next is a whole different story. uh, And perhaps that will be another platform paper in a year or two's time. Uh, What an
3: exhausting thought. (laughs) I'm not necessarily (laughs) suggesting
0: you have to write it. But, um, yeah, clearly, uh, as you... Yeah, the, the, the line that you uh, you just kind of referenced, uh, you say in the paper, it makes it hard to argue for some of that precious arts funding to go to those organisations that merely write about art rather than make it. But from your perspective, from my perspective, that is an absolutely essential part of the art ecology and whether it's Creative Victoria or the Australia Council, it need, criticism needs, it needs to, be to be funded.
3: It does. And, and more than that... Um... Companies know that, or artists know that, I should say, more than companies. though I, I, in Brisbane, I had the um, a major manager of a state theatre company saying, "We need it. We need proper criticism. So there is a, a general concern about, and it's not about coverage, it's not about PR, it's about actually the art getting recognized and talked about.
2: If
0: you want to get a copy of uh, Alison Croggan's platform paper, jump online, currencyhouse.org.au, or you can probably pick up a copy at Readings uh, or somewhere similar as well, I would hope. Um, It is a specialist publication, so it may not be even in great independent bookstores, but currencyhouse.org.au. And you should also jump online and check out Witness Performance.
3: Yay, yes.
0: Uh, What's the full URL?
3: WitnessPerformance.com.
0: .com. I couldn't remember whether it was .com or .com.au. I should have had it open on a website in front of me. That would have been easier. WitnessPerformance.com. Go there, read the commentary, read the criticism, uh, and in particular pay attention to the criticism commissioned from First Nations writers, uh, from writers who are approaching our culture from with a, a different insight, whether that's somebody... Um, uh, whether that's a person uh, who is neurodiverse writing about theatre whether that's uh, a visually impaired critic writing mm. about theatre there's some unique perspectives on there and while you're at it go and check out Audrey Journal in Sydney for the lowdown on what's happening in the Sydney art scene and Seesaw which will tell you about what's happening in Perth Alison Crogan as always an absolute pleasure to chat
3: Likewise Richard thank you